Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Listeners, Troy, I've got a question for you, and it's really going to be a matter of taste and preferences here, but I just need to know. In the 2005 slasher horror film, Venom, which we will be reviewing today, the character of Ray Sawyer, would you or would you not fuck him, Troy? I need to know. Is this your <laughs> is this your cup of tea? Do you like him rough? <laughs> Roger, I know you like rough trade. Um I like my guys to at least look like they've showered in the last, I don't know, two weeks. <laughs> so I would probably pass them off to you because I'm I'm that good of a friend. You you and Mr. Racewear could go into the back of his semi truck and just pound away and, and I would be perfectly fine with that. I will take one of the other boys from the film, but uh, yeah, Racewear is all yours. Yeah, I mean Rick Kramer, the actor that plays uh, Ray Sawyer, um, you know, he's, he's been far more appealing and more attractive than he is in this movie. Um, but in this movie, they really, they just grease him up. They they scar the fuck out of his face. They try to make him look as rough as possible, but those biceps are talking to me. And they're saying all the right things. I don't care how greasy and disgusting this man may be. I still got a thing for him. And I don't know, maybe it's because the year 2005 was was kind of like an evolutionary year for me. It would have been my my super senior year. I, I was a super senior because my grandmother died. My legal guardian died my first senior year. So I went back. So technically 2005 was my, like, my quote-unquote graduating year. And it was hugely developmental for me as like a young gay man at the age of 18 i had my own place i was able to do my own thing i was able to have sex with whoever i wanted to at the age of 18 and i was also able to watch the kind of cinema that i figured i fancied and i remember this movie coming out quietly with a hush nobody really responded to it but i did i somehow got wind of venom Manage to see it right off the bat, and I was strangely enchanted with the film. Um, I really enjoyed watching it. Does it hold up now? I don't know. I suppose that's the the topic of discussion for today's podcast. But Troy, I mean, do you remember your first experience with this movie? Honestly, no. I know I have seen it before. I had seen this film before, but I mean, it was probably around the time it came out. It probably around two thousand six because I think that I actually rented this from like Blockbuster or Family Video, remember those? I, I know I didn't see it in the theater and it did have a theatrical release, but it, like you said, it came and went without making much noise. And you know, there could be a plethora of reasons for that. One of them, probably the most obvious I would say is 2005 was beyond the slasher craze that Scream 96 had reinvigorated. Because we all know after Scream in 1996, we got a slew of basically copycat films. Not all of them were copycat films. Of course, like Urban Legend, I Still Know What You Did Last Summer. Coincidentally, the director of I Know What You Did Last Summer, Jim Gillespie, actually directed this film, which actually quite surprised me. But I feel like the slasher 
boom that Scream created, late 90s, early 2000s slasher boom, by 2005 was kind of gone. You know, it was all about the saws and the the hostels and kind of the torture porn, the more extreme stuff. So, you know, something like this and then a year later, the Black Christmas remake, a traditional slasher film just wasn't what people were, unfortunately, gnawing at at this time because we did have the saws. We did have the hostels. We had the more extreme stuff. So I see why maybe this film came and went so quickly. But I also feel like it's there's nothing about this film, and it's my main issue with this film, Roger. Nothing about this film seems to be like its own thing. There's nothing about this film that gives it its own like personality. And in fact, it just seems like a, a, a mishmash of all kinds of other types of films, other films we've seen before, kind of thrown together in a blender. And oh, let's see, let's throw some some you know voodoo snakes in the mix and see what we get. The characters, for the most part, completely one dimensional. The dialogue, in many times, is atrocious, as is the acting. And so, there's nothing really that is memorable to me. And I can tell you the one thing that I do remember about this film that made me know that I saw it is kind of the one ballsy, I think choice that it does make towards the end of the end of the film where it kills off who you very much think will be a surviving character. That is the only thing Roger. I remembered going into this movie because I felt like it was a ballsy move. Everything else. I totally did not remember anything about this film. You know, I talk up the movie a lot because I feel that, you know, when I did see it, I was still really kind of diving headfirst into the world of horror, slashers, just movies in general. I was buying every fucking movie I could. I was picking them up at Blockbusters used, like you were saying, going to those stores and purchasing the used VHSs. I mean, this is the time that I was really just immersing myself in the world of horror. And so I, I think that I have kind of fond memories of this movie because it was part of kind of a developmental stage for me with my infatuation with horror. But I will say like looking back on it, I, I have all these like glimpses of memories, but nothing, I could never sit down and actually tell you a scene from this movie. I could be like, uh, there's snakes and, uh, uh, Bijou Phillips and, uh, and, uh, Megan Good. Like, you know, you can name off a bunch of the stars, the people that were involved, but like there is a forgettability factor that comes with this movie, which I find so strange, but it's really true. Like what you said, like everything about this film, I have seen it in other movies to a T. I mean, at moments in this film look exactly like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. Moments in this movie look kind of like, almost like you're watching, like, I don't know, uh, Dracula 2000 with the charred vampire. Like, like I mean, there's things about the movie that just, I feel like it doesn't really have its own identity. There are moments, though, that there are glimpses, sequences within this film that I do think are rather stand out just visually, aesthetically, like the location, the setting, like Louisiana in general, I mean, the bayou, it is a character in this film. That does translate. And what happened in Louisiana with Hurricane Katrina, you know, this movie like came out literally days after Hurricane Katrina, like, you know, devastated so much of Louisiana. Like this was released right after that. Yeah, no, I did know that because kind of scanning through um, like IMDb and doing some just research on general information about the film, I did catch a glimpse of 
uh, some reviews that mentioned that the timing of this film was in poor taste and I really didn't get what they were talking about until yeah, I made the connection. But um, yeah, I mean, the film, I think just it, it lacks it lacks its own unique personality. And again, that's why it surprised me so much that the director of I Know What You Did Last Summer is the same director that did this because you know, I, say what you want about, I know what you did last summer, but it is a w- very well-crafted film with stellar set pieces, stellar sequences, uh, standout character, standout chase scenes, its own personality it had to, you know, it came out so close to scream and scream Two that it really had to have its own u- unique identity. And I think it pulled it off wonderfully. It's one of the standout post scream slasher films that along with Ur- urban legend. So when you look at that and then look at this, it's quite, you know, it's quite surprising, but yeah, no, I, I think that the film, yeah, I mean, I think we're going to get into it and kind of talk about the highs and lows of the film. You probably have way more highs than I do, to be honest with you. But before we get into the film, Roger, we have to, you know, again, mention we just dropped on Patreon, patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast, a brand new full length review of the watcher in the woods. It's our 21st full-length episode that's exclusive to patreon and we're still uh still pining for those uh five-star ratings on apple podcasts i said i wanted to get it to 50 before our fifth our 100th episode well next week's going to be our 100th episode and we're still at just 44 so i don't know what, what do we need to do roger we need to start showing a little skin well i think we gotta open up a kissing booth at the houston horror film festival and anybody who don't who offers to us a, a five-star review gets a free kiss from Troy. Oh, for <laughs> from, me <laughs> with those soft lips. If they're greasy looking truckers, I'll send them your way. Thank you. That's what I was hoping for. Absolutely. And you know what, Troy? I'll say this. You know, with the with the reviews coming up on our hundredth our hundredth episode, we I wouldn't dare say that we're really ones who toot our own horns, but we really are. Uh, but <laughs> but I will say that, you know. Um, I'm I'm shocked and thrilled that we are making it to our hundredth episode. And if there was ever a time to celebrate for us, I think this is quite a landmark and a sign of things to come. And and uh, you know, if you do leave us a five star review, make it with purpose. Let us know maybe a favorite episode. Let us know something about this the show thus far that maybe has stood out to you or been a fond memory, maybe a joke that you love. Uh, but something that lets us know, you know, what you keep coming back for. Because we want to make sure the next 100 episodes are living up to par with what you've heard prior. We want it better. We're going to make it better, aren't we, Troy? Oh, yeah. And if you don't know what we're talking about, you know, I don't know how many of you are iPhone users. You know, there's a whole debate between iPhone and Android. iPhone users generally listen to their podcasts on Apple Podcasts. So if you pull up Dark Knight of the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, you can scroll down and there's you can rate the podcast and you click the five stars it gives you the option to write a little review you don't have to you can just submit the five stars but we would love to hear your your reasoning for for why you tune in because yeah roger's right and i'm going to toot the horn much louder next episode because it is the 100th one but for us to make it to 100 episodes was something we never ever i think even fathomed when we started this we started this during covid when we were kind of you know, isolated and there wasn't much else to do. And it was like, Hey, let's start this podcast that I've been thinking about. And me and Roger knew each other from working together on teacher shortage. So it just seemed logical. And I mean, a hundred episodes later, here we are. 
and it's it's mind boggling. But it, and it is, Roger, like you said, it's a it's amazing feat because a lot of podcasts don't last this long. Unfortunately, we have the 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 listeners and in the I don't I hate to say fans. I I know you say fans all the time. I feel weird saying that. I feel like I'm being like stuck. Oh, I got fans. But the, you know what I mean? The, the, the listeners are fans. Okay. There we go. That, that, that keep us going. So absolutely do that. And if you don't have an iPhone and you're on Android and you're using like Spotify, they let you do a five-star rating too, but they don't let you write a review. So there you go. Enough about that. Those are two ways you can support us, Patreon, or just give us a review on your podcast app. But I feel like now we, um, God, we need to transition into, the swamps of Louisiana. Oh yeah. To discuss what is the 2005 slasher flick Venom. Yes, I mean I honestly am both hesitant and excited. My thoughts and opinions coming into this were kind of different versus like now actually sitting down to review it. I feel like I've like brought this title up a few times. I speak of it very fondly and I'm still going to give it some compliments because I don't think it's a complete failure. I really don't. No, and you're not the only one that obviously has love for the film, Roger, because when you remember on our Patreon, mentioning the Patreon again, don't kill me, but on our Patreon, we do um, a month ahead of time, we post what films we're covering the next month. So our patrons know ahead of time what films we will be covering for the upcoming month. And when we posted that we were covering Venom, if you remember, one of our very favorite patrons, our, one of our fav- very favorite listeners, John Doolin said that it made his heart filled with joy. I, I don't know if that was the exact phrase he used, but I know he said something when we mentioned Venom or when we posted we were uh, going to review Venom. So, you know, you get, you're not the only one. So, John Doolin, this one's for you as well. Um, and all I can say, and I say this with a lot of um, films that I feel like people may have watched in their youth and have nostalgic feelings for it, but haven't watched it in a long time. I get it. I get it. Trust me. I grew up in the golden age of the VHS rentals, the mom and pop video stores. There were so many films that I watched that just fill me with nostalgia. But now looking at it as an adult and rewatching it, I realize, oh my God, what was I thinking? Or I'm, I'm more prone to pick out the flaws. If you haven't watched this film for a while and you do have something like Roger, you have a nostalgic attachment to it. Give it another watch. and. Come back to us and, and finish the episode because I think I think nostalgia sometimes definitely overshadows logic, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I think that's definitely something that was a bit of the case here. I, I looked back on certain moments with like fond memories, but again, as I said earlier, like if I really wanted to sit down and describe these moments, I realize that they're just kind of like in a way, it's almost like what I thought happened and it turned out to kind of be like, not exactly what I remembered, but it'd been a while. It really was multiple years. Um, I just, I mean, to start this off, I've got to say, would someone just give Agnes Bruckner a goddamn good film? That poor girl, has she ever been in a good movie? I mean, look at, look at Agnes Bruckner's IMDb list when you get a minute. She's got blood and chocolate. You remember that fucking bomb, that fucking nonsense that she was in about the werewolves. It's gayer than Twilight. Vacancy 2, fine, okay, but it's a direct-to-DVD. I mean, this girl really kind of, like, made her name helming 
being the lead or one of the focal characters in a bunch of these, like, lower-end, either direct-to-DVD or smaller theatrical release horror movies. This was her era. There's a ton of them. You know, these are the kind of films that were coming out at that time. One thing you mentioned that I thought was really interesting and should be touched on is, like, this is, like, when the slasher was starting to kind of wane off and kind of die. Like, it, it, it went into the shadows for a few years. You got, like, a see-no-evil, which is more of the same nonsense, weird overlays you know, digital effects of, like, the killer's face, like, all up in the camera, flashing at you. And, you know, when people are getting killed, it just goes to these weird overlays. It's, like, the same kind of weird, digitalized, CGI'd style that kind of, I think, really was one of the reasons the genre kind of tanked for a bit. I think that slashers did not naturally, comfortably translate into the very CGI-laden, CGI-heavy... Uh, cinema that we were starting to get in the mid 2000s forward there was a lot of it and slashers kind of thrive being like rough around the edges practical we always talk about it the more practical effects the better i really don't know if this was the right time to release a movie like venom if this would have come out i don't know either in like the 1980s or it came out after like a Victor Crawley renaissance. I think this would have been a totally different movie and would have shied away from some of the mistakes it made. It's interesting you mentioned See No Evil because at the beginning of the episode I talked about and you mentioned it as well how this film seems like it's a combination of tons of films we've seen before and after. I know See, um, See No Evil was after this, but like just thinking about like the use of chains in this film, something that carried over into see no evil, which again, I think is a very good comparison with this film because they both, I think suffer a lot of the same huge, huge glaring uh, mistakes that turn me off as a, as a viewer and as a fan of the genre. But right now it's about venom. I feel like we need to just get into the plot. The film opens up with a elderly woman who is, Basically in a cemetery in the deep swamps of Louisiana, digging up what ends up being a suitcase. And she also, while she's digging up the suitcase, finds this snake skull charm that's called a baka. And she, of course, in good voodoo fashion, does some chanting, a little ritualistic chanting, and she puts the necklace on. It's a very moody opening to the film. It's it's thundering, it's lightning, it's getting ready to rain. You're in the deep swamps of, of Louisiana, and you hear all of the, the wind blowing through the trees. Right away, the movie does make the best usage possible out of its setting. I've got to say that right now, Troy. Like, this movie opens with a sweeping shot of, like, the Louisiana bayou, and it pushes in on this whole moment happening with this Miss F- Miss Effie, I think is her name. You don't get a lot with her, but the moments you get with her are very much, like you said, kind of traditional, right to the point, voodoo, a little stereotypical. Uh, but it's an effective way to open the movie. It feels very right in the setting in which it's set. I mean, it, it's really, if anything, I can praise about the movie is just the the set pieces, the locations, the overall vibe this film gets. It feels Louisiana. It feels voodoo. Like it does really translate that aspect of what it is well. So the the location, they make the most of it. I really love the set pieces. I got to give that a credit right off the bat. Well, yeah, the the whole Louisiana vibe of the film is definitely there. It's strong. Even though I, f- I find it interesting, though, that these characters that we're introduced to, we are led to believe, like, grew up here 
in the swamps of Louisiana and, you know, have lived there their whole lives, but none of them, not a one of them speaks with a Southern draw. Or to that specific, like, like Louisiana kind of like, they got, none of them have it. <laughs> none of them have it. And I'm like, I was like, wait a minute. Like, really? You couldn't give Agnes Bruckner some, some Southern twang vocal lessons or Bijou Phillips? She has a very Louisiana name. Why don't we, but none of them are speaking in this draw, and we're supposed to believe that they grew up here because all the characters are miserable. They want to get out of this town with the exception of one. And when I say all these characters are miserable, I mean, whew, we're going to get there because after this first scene with this voodoo priestess doing her little digging up of this suitcase, we cut to the local town diner, which looks very much like a Checkers restaurant. I don't know if you're familiar with Checkers restaurant. That was my first, one of my first jobs was working at a Checkers restaurant, and this totally reminded me of one. But we are introduced to our gaggle of, I guess, focal friend characters. Again, I was taken aback right away because none of them are speaking with a Southern accent. I know that's such a weird thing to be hung up on, but goddamn, look at every other movie that uses Louisiana as a backdrop. Like you talked about Hatchet or even something like True Blood, the, the HBO series. You know, you got Anna Paquin who is like from New Zealand and she, at least she was pulling off a fucking Southern accent. It just, it irked me. It irked me because, you know... I, the film is relying so heavily on like the voodoo aspect and which some people now, I mean, in the age we are now might say that it, that's a little offensive to be pulling that sort of thing into a, into a film and using it as a, using it as a, like a catalyst for somebody to go on a murderous rampage. It just shows me right away, like how sort of lazy the film is, if that makes any sense. Just because they utilize the location well does not mean that they utilize the characters within it properly i absolutely agree if they would have just given one or two of the characters an accent that felt authentic to the location i think that would have been the solution not everybody needs to have a, like a, a bayou draw but like come on you're, you're telling me that not one of these fuckers could pull off just a hint of it like bijou phillips come on give me a louisiana draw bijou Give me a draw. <laughs> well, particularly when they mention several times that they're close to Baton Rouge. Okay. I lived in Houston for 13 years. I used to draw one of my favorite cities, Roger, in, on, in the United States is New Orleans. New Orleans. I love it. I used to go there all the time. I would drive there. I guarantee you any fucking gas station I stopped at, any fast food restaurant, any, the people that were there, that lived there, that were working there had a fucking Southern draw. And again, I hate to be hung up on it, but again, first red flag that this film is fucking lazy. But let's move beyond that to this group of friends. And when I talk about lazy, here we come with the backstories of these friends. We got Eric, played by Jonathan Jackson, who is with his other friends. We got Ricky. We got um, Sean. We got Tammy, played by Bijou Phillips. Bijou, Bijou, how do you say it? I say Bijou, you see Bijou. I say I don't give a fuck. After 2000 and what, 16, 17, her name disappeared. So <laughs> there's, yeah, we, there's some problematic stuff surrounding Bijou, Bijou Phillips that we mentioned at the end of our last episode. But I thought that she was in this movie a lot longer than what she is. She's really not. So there's no use to harping on poor Bijou. She was, get, she was getting a paycheck for this. Bless her heart. She's whatever. But these characters, 
are like, think of like every conflict you've ever seen in like a uh, episode of Dawson's Creek or One Tree Hill. And that's what you got there here. There's nothing like original about these characters. This Eric character who he's all mopey and depressed because Eden played by your favorite Agnes fucking Bruckner. Agnes Bruckner. They they just broke up and you know he's watching her and his friends are like oh dude you just need to go talk to her and the story that you get about these two breaking up could not be more cliched if you tried we've seen it in fifty fucking movies and what it is is he broke up with her because she got accepted to a different college out of state and they were supposed to go to LSU and Baton Rouge together. And he's wondering if it's, you know, if it really is because she got a free ride to Columbia or if it's just that she doesn't want to be with him anymore. We've seen this. And again, these characters, and I'm specifically talking about Eden and Eric, the actor and actress, Jonathan Jackson and Agnes Bruckner to me have zero chemistry together. Like I cannot buy that they even could stand each other, let alone were dating each other and planning on spending the rest of their lives together because there is zero chemistry. Well, all they ever do throughout the whole course of the film is argue. You never see them in the midst of their romantic entanglements. You come up on it, they're already broken up. And I think that one of the biggest pitfalls of this movie is like when you think of the classic slashers, you think what made them great you know, as awesome as the killer may be, is it's often the cast of characters that exist within the same world, the cast of characters that you're following that, you know, are intertwined in the story revolving around the killer. If you don't have good characters, I don't care how great your killer is, how great he looks, how great whatever. If you don't care about the people being killed, then it's kind of like a moot point. Like, why fucking bother? And so, you know, you look at like, You know, you've got Nancy. She grew up on Elm Street. She is, you know, immediately thrown into that universe, has a a connection to to Freddy Krueger. You have Laurie Strode, you know, direct relation in the sequel. But even in the first film, you know, she lived in the town in which these things had happened. You know, her family was responsible for the property because of the real estate. There's all these little things that tie her to Michael Myers that they chose to expand upon. You know, these characters... This, they are not written into the story. The story is written as part of their lives, and they become intertwined with the killers. This film, a few of the secondary characters have a direct relation to the main focal villain, but the main characters that we're following are interchangeable. You could pluck them out and put any other characters into the story, and they have literally no impact on what's happening. There is no you know, real reason for the character of Eden to be involved in Ray's story of what happens, just a matter of like wrong place, wrong time. Um, you know, there's a few supporting characters who have honestly more importance to the storyline than Eden does. But honestly, Eden's story is is throwaway. It has very little impact on the main core story of what we're trying to tell here. Well, and the, she's not engaging. I'm just not engage with this character at all uh, i don't really care about her struggles just because we're not we're giving really nothing of any dimension with this character like i said it's all very like oh dawson's creek episode 362 you know here the lovers are quarreling again and it doesn't help that there's like i said no chemistry between 
Eden and Eric, right? And then you get this other couple, Sean and Rachel, who I did not even realize were supposed to be a couple until like halfway through the movie. Because again, I don't think this film, whoever wrote this film, doesn't did not know how to write characters and, and write situations to let the audience know like intentions of characters or relationships between characters. Because like I said, I had no idea that Rachel and Sean were supposed to be a couple. And then I was just getting confused because all of the, none of the characters have very distinct personalities. So like that girl that was sitting with uh, Tammy Bajou Phillips character here during this scene, when she's getting drunk um, or she wants more alcohol, I thought that was Rachel. I, I did, it was just so like the characters are just so meaningless in this film and who ends up being the focal character. Like you said, is probably the least expected of, of the entire group considering their connection to the story. And we are going to get there because this, this film does some really just mind boggling decisions and, particularly with characters and it'll introduce something. And then five minutes later, do something that sort of like sort of totally contradicts what it initially introduced. You know, there's this character of Cece who is a coworker of Eden who is played by Megan good. Eden has noticed that Eric's out there watching her and she's kind of getting all bitchy about it. And, and Cece's like, Oh, you know what? Things are going to be perfect between you and Eric. And Eden's like, yeah, really? How do you know? And she's like, cause I just, have a sense for these things. And then we get Ray Sawyer pulling up in his tow truck, coming out in his greasy, dirty ass wife beater with this big old scar on the side of his face and just a turning Roger on. I mean, I don't want to say I necessarily think this man is hot. What I am saying is like in the right time, in the right situation, in the right, I don't know, truck stop (laughs) motel, there'd be a, a sexy factor I couldn't deny. I don't know why. I don't know what it is about him. Um, maybe it's a scar. Maybe it's that giant facial scar. Whatever it is. Um, you know, they introduced this character of Ray, and it's it's weird to me because the way they introduce characters here in general, it's handled in such like a blasé manner that like it's kind of building up what you're saying. It's like you almost don't know who to even really care about. You know, like instantly like you know there's some focus on Agnes Bruckner but they just hand you the entire cast in one scene they're like here's everybody including the supporting players including the villain before he's an actual villain you're going to meet him as well for about 10 seconds like they really just throw it all at you right away and you're supposed to kind of I guess keep up with it but it's it's so simplistic like what they give you in these opening scenes, like you get two lines from each character. I think like literally when they're writing the script, they're like, we got to make sure we give each character like two lines, but two lines maximum, let them say something Let like, let's make sure we show who they are and then let's move on. Because like, when you look at like the stereotypes that you're hitting with these characters, you know, you've got like, you've got the wild drunk girl. You've got like her best friend, like they're up to no good. That's you and me in a movie, Troy. We're Bijou Phillips. We're Patty and Tammy, you know? Getting drunk at our fucking nearby checkers. <laughs> Just, uh, like flashing people. Because you got Bijou <laughs> Phillips coming up and flashing her knockers. Bra on. But still, she she flashes Ray here in a second. But like, you know, th- and that's that's what you get for the development. You've got the friend Ricky. All of their names sound very similar, by the way. 
Ricky. I think he's gay. I don't know. Is he gay or are they just making fun of him? I kind of feel like he's the gay friend. Um, not sure. You got Sean, played by the sexy DJ Katrona, who's only gotten better with age. I mean, he's younger here, but my God, oh, Lord, he's so hot. Probably is the best story arc out of all of the characters. And my God, is it completely disregarded and tossed aside? Again, going off what you're saying. It's so weird to me that they choose to just spill all the characters like out on the table, let us get a glimpse of them, but it doesn't feel like we really get to know or care about any of them. I'm glad you mentioned the name sounding the same. I have that note. Okay, so literally you got Eric Eden, Rachel Ricky Ray, Tammy. Patty. Patty. And then Cece. So you got like literally two, you got Eric Eden, Rachel Ricky Ray. It's just, they couldn't even muster up enough creativity to give us names that sound, you know, unique and, and different from each other. Yeah. So after this, after Ray comes up and gets his order, you know, he uh, walks back to his truck and everyone's like, oh, he's so creepy. He creeps me out. But then we cut to back to the swamp where this elderly woman is literally dragging this suitcase back to her car while in the pouring rain. And yeah, back at the diner. Ricky, I don't know. I did not get the impression he was gay, but perhaps... There's a joke that's cracked later, and I didn't know if they were saying that because he actually is gay or if they're using it in a derogatory way. In my mind, I like to think Ricky is gay, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I don't know. Could be. I mean, he's the only male character in the film that's not really attached to a female unless he... I couldn't really tell if he was supposed to be like into the Tammy character that way, but if so, it's not very... It's not made very clear because this, at the end of the day, this Tammy and Patty characters really have nothing to do in the film. Like you think they're going to be prominent parts and it turns out they are not. Uh, particularly the scene when, yeah, when Bijou Phillips is drunk and her Tammy character flashes Ray while he's sitting in his uh, tow truck trying to eat his Checkers burger and she's flashing her knockers at him. I really dislike about this film that it like it has a group of friends, but it almost breaks them up into clicks. Like I feel like the writers were like, okay, we got to give these three storylines with each other. We're going to give these three storylines with each other. But they like they never really intercept. Like they they never like cross paths. Like I feel like Patty and Tammy are like in their own world. And then you've got like Sean and occasionally Eric and they're going through Sean's shit. And then you got Eric and Eden and they're going through their shit. And then you got Rachel and I guess she's just like the friend, but she's kind of like really just floating around in the universe. Like, I don't feel like we even have a defined idea of how strong these relationships are, how close of friends they are. Is Cece part of their group or is she just like a random girl in the town? Like, I don't even know really because we're given nothing prior to the events that transpire on this night. I have no idea the kind of bonds that are formed between these people, how strong they are, how much history they have. Like it feels so just paper thin. It's very, very light on the exposition. And you really just don't understand anything about these people other than the very little bit of information that you're given. There was a breakup. People are emotional over it. Moving on. One thing I also did notice about this film that was a little jarring for me is like some of these characters, they start out one way where you're like, oh my gosh, okay, I really like this Eric Eric character. He's very sweet. He's very well-intentioned. But then the very next scene, you're like, oh my fucking God, is this the most annoying person I've ever fucking encountered in my life? And it happens with a lot of these characters. So not only like are they paper thin and one-dimensional, but they're also like not consistently 
given a solid defining personality. Like there'll be one scene where they're doing something because that's what the scene calls for. But then the next scene you're like, Oh my God, I cannot tolerate this person. I want to shut the fucking movie off. Uh, and, and it just was, like I said, just so weird. And, and again, it just goes to like not understanding how to write characters or how to direct actors. I don't know, which is puzzling because like I said, Jim, Jim Gillespie, it's not like he was a first time director with zero experience. We get this scene that kind of leads into everything that happens in this film. It's where the work shift is over. Eden has to ride her bike. She uh, And Rachel makes fun of her, but Eden's like, hey, I'd rather have uh, a bike than a car payment because I have tuition to pay for it. Um, so she gets on her bike and she's pedaling down the back streets of Louisiana. Of course, Eric pulls up next to her in his Jeep. And this is when they have their only moment of like, okay, we get a little bit of backstory and it's when he confronts her and he's like, what is your problem? Eden? And she's like, well, you broke up with me. He says, no, I didn't. You broke up with me. And she says, no, when I told you I got accepted to Columbia, we needed to, and we needed to figure out what we were going to do. You broke up with me. And this is the whole thing where like they supposedly had planned to go to LSU together. She applied to Columbia behind his back got a grant to go so she's not going to pay for it and she wants out of this fucking town she's like there's nothing here for me i want out of this town and he says oh well is there is it me you don't want get the fuck over yourself jonathan jackson like come on no wonder girl wants to get her ass out of there did you just see that long bicycle shot of her riding through this bumfuck town it's like three buildings and a bridge and they're on the bridge right now they're having an argument. There's nothing to this town. No wonder she wants to leave. Support her. If you're a great boyfriend, communicate. And then the comments made by her is, well, you have your dad's shop here, which we never even know. I've seen one shop in this entire town and it's actually Ray's. But like, she's like, there's nothing here for me. So yeah, we get this argument. And speak of the devil, Ray pulls up in his tow truck. He pulls upon the scene and he wants to know if everything's okay. And he asks Eden, is this boy bothering you? And she's like, no, 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 it's all good. We're just talking. And he makes a comment about you shouldn't be parking your truck on the side of the road like that. And as he pulls away and he's going down the road, poor Miss Tilly or whatever her name is, is coming down the road in her little car with her suitcase in the back and is in his lane what ends up happening, she has to swerve and her car like spins out of control and goes off the side of the bridge and literally is hanging there while she bashes her poor head against the driver's side win- window. And of course, everyone's freaking out. They're trying to get to her and she is unconscious. First, Eric tries and, and Ray is like, no, get out of the way. Get out of the way. So Ray gets into the car and he's is able to pull this woman out. But she keeps telling him, you need the suitcase. Please get the suitcase. Please get the suitcase. So while he gets this woman out and onto the road, he decides he's going to go back back in for this suitcase, Roger. And we get introduced to our first of what would be many, many instances of CGI Cobras. Let's pause for a second because there's a few things here worth dissecting. First of all, the initial sequence of the car swerving and going over the bridge is actually a pretty good looking sequence. It's shot really well. You see the car do a full swipe around before it's hanging off the edge of the bridge. There's a lot going on. 
And the woman's insisting about the suitcase. And I would be like, ma'am, I'm sorry, but I'm not going back into that fucking suitcase. No matter what you're telling me is in it. But God love Ray. You know, he goes on in and he goes to grab it. Of course, the car plummets into the water below. I really do like the sound design here, by the way. I will say, like, during the conversation, you hear the, the water, like, rushing beneath the bridge. So you know something's going to happen involving it building up to this. So when it does finally plummet into the water, you get some really cool shots of the car sinking to the bottom of the river. There's some good cinematography here. Uh, the snakes. Let's talk about the snakes. So Ray's in this car. He's injured. The suitcase opens. And not only are these snakes, but these are apparently zombified snakes because they're like withered husks of snakes. Um, and so it's, it's, they're all, it's very confusing. They look very strange and like, they look okay to start. But by the time the movie is concluded, I assure you, these do dig, dig digress into the worst looking CGI snakes you'll ever see. Like snakes on a plane looks like a masterpiece compared to these things. They just literally look like, they look like foreskins moving all around. Big, long foreskins biting people. But so he's trapped in the car with these CGI snakes. And it is kind of one of those notes where you're like, okay, 2005, I see ya. And I understand what you're dealing with, but this was a bold choice to incorporate so many CGI snakes into this film uh, when it, it appeared to be such an issue for you to create. Them. Yeah. Well, they attack him. They start to bite him, and you you do get his screams as the car sinks into the depths of this river below. Uh, and then we cut to the police on the scene, and they are they were able to get Ray's body out of the water. And of course, the sheriff's like, "Yeah, but he looks real bad. This is I don't know something got him down there." So they pull the sheet over. Uh, we don't see it, but like yet, you know, they're trying they're keeping it top secret what Ray's body looks like. The deputy is like, uh, Sheriff, we also found this suitcase. Do you know what it is? And the sheriff's like, well, yeah, some some old Creole thing. And then he instructs his deputy to get Ray's tow truck and get it back to his garage. Uh, and the deputy's like, man, I just got on duty two hours ago. And the sheriff's like, move your ass. You know, he ain't playing. Uh, Eden is comforting Eric for a moment about feeling bad that he wasn't able to do anything. I don't know what this kid really thought he was going to do. And then Cece shows up and it's her grandmother that was the one that was in this car accident and unfortunately has died. So she goes and looks at her dead grandma and notices that she has the snake charm necklace with her. So she takes it and then she goes and asks the sheriff, was there a suitcase in the car? And the sheriff's like, well, yeah, but we pulled it out and it was empty. And then she freaks out. And it's like, I need to go to my grandmother's house now. So then we cut to the morgue where the medical examiner, I believe this is the medical examiner or some hospital worker is talking to his girlfriend on the phone about how bad this body looks. And he goes over, pulls off the sheet. And we do see now what Ray's body looks like. And Roger the way they are talking about it, I expected it to be like mangled and skin hanging off and just unrecognizable. Literally, like you see a few snake bites. <laughs> yeah, the body looks kind of like puffy and bloated and there's some like green ooze coming out of the bites, but it really isn't anything too shocking and it stays that way for a little bit because I, I, I'll be clear. This body's coming back to life one way or another. Um, the, and and it, it is kind of 
anticlimactic. Like the first few times that you do see Ray take on this malevolent form um, moving forward through the rest of the film, he really isn't terribly scary at first. And, and But we'll get to that. You know, we will kind of dissect that a bit. Because um, the sequence itself is something I enjoy. I, I do think that this is like, there's a few scenes here, one after another, like the next scene featuring the the deputy, Method Man, by the way, that is Method Man. If this movie wasn't mid-2000s enough, this movie features Method Man in this role. But, you know, these scenes here, we've seen him a million times before. We've got the mortician in the morgue, who's obviously going to die after the body is suddenly missing. We've seen it done so many times. I, I can name 10 movies in which we've seen the same scene. But they do an okay job with it. And then you've got random bumbling cop who's going to be killed off next. Again, we've seen it a million times before. Um, I think both of these scenes coming up here, these two random characters that are both very disposable, I actually don't mind these scenes. I think that this sequence with the body disappearing, you know, he walks back, the body's no longer on the table. Nice fun buildup. Uh, really kind of drawn out. Like there's some nice building suspense for a moment. But one of the things this movie often suffers from is the kills that follow often, if almost never, live up to the buildup that these sequences provide. I like a nice, suspenseful, drawn-out buildup sequence. You know it, Troy. You know I love like a nice stalking scene. Give me a good chase scene. Give me something that you know gets me kind of on the edge of my seat. But we're going to come to find that there's a good amount of kills in this movie that kind of just make you just kind of sit back and go, oh, oh, that's it? Okay. Like, I don't know. And so, and this this first sequence here with this morgue attendant, um, this mortician, I really like the scene, but it ends on like a really abrupt note and you don't really know what the fuck happens. And, and I feel like a little disappointed. I feel a little robbed. Do you get what I'm saying? Oh, of course, because this scene definitely does not lead to a satisfying conclusion it's actually quite lame because what happens is yeah he gets off the phone with his girlfriend he goes back the body is gone and i wouldn't say it's a tremendous build-up i mean this scene is honestly not that long he goes out into the hallway to look for the body he notices some some footprints hears some lights and hears some jangling and turns around real quick and we get this like musical sting that serves as sort of a jump scare. Nothing happens. And then he turns and walks a little bit further. And then all of a sudden it's like the end of, I know what you did last summer. The killer pops, jumps through a window, but we don't see anything. We don't, a, we don't see what he looks like. B, we don't see the death. We just see the glass shatter and it cuts, cuts away, which is kind of for the opening kill. You know, it's very unsatisfying. I would, I will say though, that the next scene the next death scene with this deputy who you say is method man. My God, I haven't heard that name for years. Okay. Didn't he do Christina Aguilera's dirty with her? Want to get dirt? Oh, for God's sake. Oh, well, okay. No, that was red man. Okay. Red man and method man. They were best friends. They were very close companions. Well, there you go. Look at Roger. He's a privy of pop music knowledge as well. Yeah. So this deputy arrives at Ray's gas station with the tow truck. When he gets out, he notices that the the chain he has around the cop car that he was using to tow it has dented the cop car. So he's freaking out that the sheriff's going to have his ass. And then we hear some rattling. And he goes to scope out the property. 
Uh, it goes back to the tow truck and notices the keys that he had set on the hood of the tow truck are now gone. And he hears them rattle. So he, you know, ducks down to look under the tow truck and sees a figure run by. And of course, he immediately gets on the radio to call the sheriff and call for help. When Ray comes up behind him with the crowbar and basically kills him with the crowbar, he bashes him in the throat with it and then hooks him in the chest with it and then hooks him again and, and like drags his impaled body away. Reminds me of like the pickaxe scene from My Bloody Valentine where the, the miner is dragging the body away while the pickaxe is in its chest. That's kind of what happens here. I mean, it's this is a fine scene. This is probably, I would say, the, yeah. the best scene in the film in terms of death. But again, I feel like the buildup could have been a lot more. There was a lot of room for a lot of suspenseful searching. A lot of suspenseful stalking sequences could have been done here because of the property itself is so creepy. This gas station, you could have definitely prolonged this so that the deputy was actually walking around and we, you know, going into these creepy buildings and we don't precisely know when the killer is going to pop out or who it is, but no, this is pretty quick. This happens very quickly. It does. It does. And, um, you know, I, I feel that, well, first of all, I got a soft spot for rappers go actors. I love them. You know, it's a, it's a hit and a miss, you know, for every good rapper. You like Busta Rhymes. Well, I was going to say, I say to this, Buster Rhymes who? I think Method Man gives me a significantly more enjoyable performance in this small sequence than Buster Rhymes ever could with his happy Halloween, motherfucker. Like, like, I think that Method Man really showed potential to be a fun character in this film. They barely use him. But I enjoy the sequence. I think it has some personality to it. I do just feel that, again, many of the death scenes, they build and they build and they build, and then they don't often hit the kind of the pinnacle that you expect them to. This is the one that probably one of the few that, that comes closest. There's a couple more I enjoy. But see, you keep saying that the death scenes build and build and build. And I disagree. Like I have a, such a strong note about that, about the fact that the fact that the setting that we talked about is so effective. Like, yes, you get the Louisiana swamps, you get this dilapidated, like gas station or whatever this body shop you get a lot of these really cool set pieces the big uh plantation house that cc's grandmother lives in that becomes a prominent part i, I see I, I i feel like the death sequences or the stalking sequences leading up to them could have been so so much grander so much better we could have you know they could have covered so much area of this grandiose louisiana swamp setting and they don't like, I don't think these death sequences are built up at all. Honestly, every single one of them, it's like, whoop, I would say, you know, the, the next one that we get, it's probably the one that has the most build up, but even it is not that wonderful. I'll agree on that note, Troy. I, I will say that maybe more in the sense like they take their time. Like, I mean, like this sequence, it takes, it's not like a brief scene. He's walking through the whole property. But I do think that maybe a more, I hate to say more seasoned or skilled filmmaker, because like, you're right, like previous credits prove that this could have been, should have been done a lot better. I It does, it, you know, I come back to the word lazy. It's building and it's building, but it never takes full advantage. I'll say this. It's not just the kill. It, it feels like you're spending all this time and it doesn't ever pay off. Like, if you're going to give me this kind of long, drawn-out sequence, make it 
utilize the time more. Like don't just have someone walking around the space to have them walking around it. When you have these amazing locations, like have it lead somewhere, have there be something more to it. It feels like these scenes are just kind of there for typical fodder because these characters that get killed off are so thin and so pointless that like, not only do they not develop the characters, but they also don't feel like they fully bake fully process their kill sequences yeah well yes if you see this director's name and you're thinking you're going to get a helen shivers chase scene in this film forget it you're not at all the next morning eden wakes up has coffee at home with her concerned mother who is literally in the film for five seconds why they even paid an actress to come on set for for this day is beyond me but whatever we get it and then we get eric and sean they're chilling out downtown chatting and Eric apologizes to Sean and Sean's like, man, you don't need to worry about it. He, all he, all he did was fuck my mom and left her. That doesn't make him my father. So there's this revelation that Ray is Sean's father could be interesting, could have been interesting. However, it's so flimsily utilized later in the film like when we get to that point i'm going to tell you what i expected to happen and it just doesn't and so so it makes this whole introduction of ray being sean's father completely pointless absolutely pointless okay we do get a nice shot of eden riding her bike through the cemetery and i do like the cemetery the cemetery is very uh, southern very swampish it definitely reminds you if you've ever been to like new orleans and have been through some of the cemeteries there it definitely gives you that vibe um, but she's there to visit her father's grave. Apparently her father passed away too, which is mentioned. But again, there's no point to it. Like it doesn't really provide us with any sort of like ultimate like character motivation or really drive the plot. It's just like, oh, her dad's dead. Oh, she goes to the cemetery to look at his grave. Okay, perfect. It does allow her though to, to see while she's at the cemetery, Ray's tow truck driving down the road which of course captures her attention because Ray is supposed to be dead. And in fact, she goes to work and tells Rachel about it. And Rachel's like, that is impossible. It could not have been Ray's tow truck. You had to have been seeing something else. And Tammy is back at this restaurant. See, this kind of reminds me of like Phantom of the Mall where like everyone in town hung out at this mall in Phantom of the Mall, including the mayor, everybody. In this film, everyone seems to hang out at this checkers-like diner because all the gang is there again. You got Tammy there talking to Ricky about how she's not really sad that Ray was dead because he was kind of a dick. And this is where that joke comes in, right? And where he's like, well, yeah. So, you know, Tammy is talking about how big of a dick Ray was. And, you know, and Patty chimes in and says something smart. And Ricky's comment is, well, I guess some people were just born bitchy. And she's like, or gay toward to, to Ricky. So I, I don't know. Do you think he's supposed to be gay? The way it builds up, she says some people are just born rotten. Some people are just born that way. Like, you know, or gay. Like, she references it to him jokingly. And he goes, oh, hmm, or bitchy. And she goes, or bitchy. And like, kind of like they're like lovingly kind of berating each other. And he does this little thing where he cocks his eyebrows. And I, like, when I was younger, I took it that this was hinting that he was gay. Because uh, he's hanging out with the girls. He's always just him and the girls. And they're busting each other's balls. And so for me, like, I think I internalized that he was gay, like, in my mind. But it really, like, that is not enough to go off of. Let's be real. But I kind of hoped 
in some way it was hinting at a gay character because in 2005 that would have been groundbreaking i guess <laughs> well if it was it caputted because it doesn't go anywhere after this like they don't it's not like they give him a love interest or have him do really anything remotely gay after this little comment back in the restaurant eden is asking rachel about what she knows about cc's grandmother and cc's like i don't know i just know all the t- the, the typical town gossip the fact that she's like this important voodoo priestess and this is when we get Tammy and Patty who are apparently taking some road trip because they stop at Ray's gas station to get air while Patty ventures in to use the bathroom. This scene here is probably like if you were going to say like, what's the scene from Venom that most people know? Not saying many people know any scenes from Venom, but if you're going to reference one, it's probably the Bijou Phillips chase quote-unquote chase sequence that you're given because it is the closest thing you do get to a chase scene. Um, and, it, and let us be clear, like these two characters have only had a handful of scenes prior to this. This film really, like as you go through this and we're kind of analyzing this, it is clear that the characters were written for the story. The story wasn't written for the characters. I think they knew they had to hit certain beats, have certain things happen, have certain events happen at certain times to keep the story moving. Oh, we need this blood ritual to happen. So we'll make Sean his son. Like, it feels like these things were written in to accommodate the story without any consideration of the characters in mind. So when you get to this moment here with this whole sequence, I think they just knew they needed to have like a a kill sequence, a chase sequence. Like this could have all happened technically without these two girls even being involved. And he still would have had multiple bodies for his blood ritual. Cause we have seen a few sequences of that, of him making his blood snakes on the walls. There's rituals happening by the way, let's just be clear. But I really feel like they're like, okay, well we got to make sure we have a chase scene. Let's just get it over with. Let's get it done. These two girls show up separate from the pack. They've got their own storyline going on. It's not really connected to anything. They show up, they go into the location one by one, and of course they're like promptly killed off. And it doesn't really serve any purpose other than having a kill happen. It it feels very, I, I use this term a lot, but it's shoehorned in. Um, and it doesn't mean I necessarily dislike the scene. I actually think there's a few aspects of the scene that I enjoy, including Bijou Phillips slipping in that blood and crawling all around going, ah! like that scream she's got she's got the shrillest scream it's almost hard to listen to but i like it but like yeah like the scene like it's fine it's another fine sequence but i feel like it gives you like a 65 70 percent and you're really aching for like a 90 percent or 100 percent performance here at this point you need a standout scene and the scene is good but it's just we've seen better like we said earlier we have seen so many better well, and it's rushed too. I mean, this is while this scene is the like the is built up the most. It still ultimately is very rushed uh, because when Tammy realizes that Patty's not coming back, she goes into the into the gas station. She contemplates taking the money from the cash register for a moment before she kind of decides not to. But then she goes back into the like the garage part of this gas station and immediately like notices Tammy's shoe laying on the floor. So she actually walks over towards this shoe and then she slips. Yeah, she slips in this giant puddle of blood and looks up and we see that Patty's body is like hanging from the ceiling. And yeah, we get this little bit of a chase scene, which with Baiju Phillips running around this gas station as Ray comes out and shuts all of the 
the automatic garage door. So she's trapped in there. And there's this moment where she, in terms of trying to get away, she runs under a car that is jacked up and he's able to unlatch the jack. So the car falls on her and, and basically crushes her to the point where she can't like get out. And she's like gasping for breath. And then he takes this, what is this? This is a paint, a paint, a car, like to, to paint a car. What was this thing? I could not. It strips the paint from strips the the paint. Okay. So it's like really high pressured air then that's coming out super, super, super fast. You know, you're talking like this air is probably shooting out of this hose at 70, 80 miles an hour. Yeah. Cause it takes the paint off the car. Well, he approaches her with it and she's screaming that horsey scream and it cuts. We assume then that that's, how she died was he used this paint stripper on her face well she got this moment of what is a good build-up i mean she's like screaming her little head off it's getting intense the movie blue balls you it's a cock tease you think it's gonna be something good then he turns to the camera and he blasts the thing at the camera the air at the camera and this is now the second time in the film where a kill sequence has kind of been slathered with bad digital effects gore effects like you had it earlier with the, the scene with the deputy being killed you had a really digital throat cut or I, I, yeah throat i believe it was the throat it's either the cheek or the throat but I, I actually paused it because i saw it and it's like god that looks really bad and i paused it and it is in fact like when you freeze frame some of these blood effects like they are severely dated this did not age well and this sequence specifically for for having Probably what is the strongest buildup when he goes up to that car door and he rips the paint off of it with that thing, makes her watch it before he does it to her. I was thinking I was going to see a girl's skin get blown off her face. Only for him to walk up to the camera and do a POV shot and you just get this horribly digitalized gore kind of like spraying away from the camera and it just looks really awful. And I was like, even, okay, it's one thing to cut away. It's another thing to cut away and slather it with, with, with bad digital blood. Like it really, it's it's like a boner killer for a horror fan when you see something like that. It, it, it was disappointing. I did not remember how bad some of the CGI was in these kill sequences. So it was a disappointing moment to see a sequence that had some promise and was such like a, a lame, lame note. Yeah, based off of the the buildup, I expected something more than just like a cheesy cutaway. But we then go to this lake where Sean is getting drunk while swimming. And this is like when it's made apparent that Sean and Rachel are supposed to be a couple because she's like, oh, you know, do you want you're getting drunk and like he's kissing her and stuff. And Eric is there with Eden trying to convince her because she's worried, obviously, because all this weird shit's happening. The voodoo stuff is not real. He's like, you know, that voodoo stuff is just folklore, right? Louisiana folklore. It's like, yeah, I know. But then Ricky shows up and tells everyone that he has some news. The coroner and deputy are missing and Ray's body has also gone missing. This causes Sean, who is supposed to be drunk, but it's not really acting drunk to like get out of the water and be like oh fuck this get on his motorcycle and rachel's like eric stop him he's drunk and eric goes after him but sean just drives away on his motorcycle and as he's driving away you do see the pickup truck take off after him for a moment like his relationship with his dad goes from not being mentioned to being really 
important for like a minute. Like they, they put a lot of focus on it. He has a big breakdown coming up. Like they're starting to make it a thing. Uh, you think it's going to really pay off. It does not pay off as much as you would expect it to with the kind of hot topic it becomes within the storyline for a minute here. But the story doesn't really know like what it's telling aside from the killer and like the progress with the killer being possessed by this voodoo force that's really turning him into like a zombie like aside from that i don't really think it knows the story it's wanting to tell with its characters so it's telling like 10 of them but i I, one thing to acknowledge is like ray you know we haven't really touched on him that much here the progression of ray over the course of the film like at this point you know as you're seeing ray more and more he's starting to take on this like very like monstrous like demonic kind of appearance you know at first he's just a corpse he looks like ray he's got hair then all of a sudden he's bald at one point but for a while he's looking very much like almost like the design i would compare to like the juggernaut in the remake of 13 ghosts which i bring up all the fucking time troy i know but he like the aesthetic i feel like someone saw that in 13 ghosts and they're like that's what i want i want him to be the killer i just i only want one of them so this is like a smaller more petite version of of the juggernaut from 13 ghosts but he does start to kind of like morph into this slightly more intimidating creature as it goes on it does become better at first i do not find him scary at all he almost becomes reptilian which makes sense right because as we find out he has been basically possessed from the snakes and as as time goes on he's getting more and more of the evil that these snakes injected him with is taking over his body so yeah his body becomes black scaly his eyes almost become reptilian like by the end of the movie it doesn't look terrible considering like all of the other effects in the movie i think you know he actually looks pretty pretty scary by the end of the film the problem is you know it's just as a as a killer like you said we we've had so many like kaput death scenes with this particular killer that it's hard to be completely like oh i'm very intimidated by this by this guy and then like his motivations and stuff like again switch or or they don't make sense as the film progresses like something's mentioned and you're like okay so when that happens it's going to be no it's just so so wonky in terms of storytelling and i think that's the film's biggest problem it's just the story it's trying to tell it doesn't really know how to plot it structure it and then give us characters to drive the story Eden, Ricky, and Rachel decide they're going to drive to Cece's grandmother's to check on how she's doing, and they pull up to this huge plantation house, another really effective location, and as they go to this house, we see all these like voodoo uh, charms and stuff hanging from the porch that Rachel is like, oh, I don't like these, and they go in, and they notice like there's a red substance in the doorway, like along the floor. And the house itself is also full of all these just like voodoo-esque knickknacks, including this huge painting that Ricky is like just to know when he's like, oh, what do you think this is? And Cece appears and tells them that it's a painting of a milking ceremony. And what she describes a milking ceremony to be is where snakes in traditional voodoo rituals have been used to suck out a man's evil before his death. I'm assuming this is a real thing that they just didn't make it up for this film. I have never heard of this before, but then again, I'm not well versed on like voodoo rituals. So I'm assuming this is a real concept in, in voodoo. I don't know. What do you think? 
I mean, I hope so. Like, I wouldn't put it past the writers. Like, based off what I've gotten so far, this definitely strikes like the, strikes me as the kind of film that would be like, all right, let's, like, not, like, do our homework. Let's go off, like, the basic idea of what we think voodoo is like. Let's look up some cool terms and write a story around that. Like, I feel like they're, like, in a boardroom being like, all right, the topic of this slasher, we're going to make this one voodoo. Everyone spend 15 minutes, find out whatever you can about voodoo. Let's write a script. Like, I, I'm, I'm hoping that the milking ceremony is a real thing. I'm thinking it's got to be built off of something. But overall, like, what comes from this moving forward, because uh, Cece's back. And I wish I could say it was better than ever. But honestly, this point moving forward, all she really does is cry, talk about voodoo, make mysterious commentary on the, the going-ons around them. And then she attempts to perform a ritual, but really she kind of just fails. Like the character of Cece, if we're going to talk about characters that in my mind deserved more from this film, make it the one character out of the group that knows anything about fucking voodoo. If you're going to give me a movie in my mind, deeply rooted in voodoo, I, last thing I need to be watching is a group of four white children running around trying to fight the evil force without someone who's properly educated or knowledgeable or has an understanding on the voodoo itself. For Cece to be pushed to such like a secondary supporting character feels kind of like offensive to me. Does that make sense? It does, Roger. And I was actually going to see if you brought that up. Um, the fact that the the black characters in this film, all of them are easily dispatched, really don't serve a purpose other than to be a body count. And you are given Megan Good, Cece here, who the buildup of the story and what we are hearing is, oh, you know, he's going to be after uh, he's going to be after Cece. He's going to, you know, she even says, oh, he's going to come after me and he's not going to be happy until I'm dead because, you know, he knows that my grandmother is the one that resurrected the the souls and that she was the keeper of the souls and you get all this stuff and she's able to spit out all this knowledge. And yeah, she's not the most, um, you know, skilled when it comes to these ceremonies, but she is like the, the, the whole basis, Roger, of this movie is voodoo. Like that is the main topic of this film is voodoo, right? So then you take the one character, the one black character, Cece, who is immersed in the lifestyle of voodoo, and you are going to reduce her to a sniffling, crying, bumbling secondary character who can't even outlive half of these inept white kids. It is rather eyebrow raising, I would say. It is, you know, it is. And especially if you look at the cast overall, like, it's not like the cast, the extended cast isn't diverse. Like, there are a multitude of people of color in this film. It's the volume of them that are dispatched so early on. Three of the, th the, the three first kills are African-American. The morgue attendant, the deputy, Patty. And then you've got one character left. Well, the grandmother, too. The grandmother. Oh, my God, you're fucking right. That's four of them. God damn it. So then you've got Cece coming into play. And it really seemed like they were going to include her. The way she's introduced here, she comes in in you know, this 
beautiful white ritual gown. She's, you know, talking about all of her knowledge of the rituals and, and of the voodoo and everything that her grandmother taught her. She's showing them around the house to her, um, like her temple and everything. Like there's all these different rooms filled with all these artifacts. And she seems pretty educated on all of it. I mean, like you said, she's nowhere near as talented as her grandmother was, but she's clearly grown up in this culture and has a solid understanding. Like that is an important tool to introduce into the story. This is something that I feel would be wisely incorporated in the defeating of uh, the villain. Okay. And you know what? You, uh, when we talk about this, the white girl, right? Eden, and we're cut, we were jumping ahead way to the end of the film, but like I, I think this needs to be said. Like the white girl is the one that is able to defeat finally this evil force, but she does it only because she was told by Cece, the black girl, what could defeat this thing. Like it, it just I don't know why they felt the need to extinguish the Cece character so abruptly in the film and leave us because I feel, you know, even though Cece is kind of throughout, throughout most of the film, just kind of like crying and spitting out voodoo stuff. I still actually find her a little bit more engaging than the Eden character. And I wanted, I wanted more from her and it just, I hate, I hate to throw around the word offensive. I really do because I'm not offended by a lot of things. I'm just that, that type of person that I don't get offended easily about stuff. But like when you look at this film and you look at, and you put all these pieces together and realize, my God, like, yeah, there is something that just doesn't sit right with me when you have a film that's about voodoo, which, especially in, in Louisiana, and then you're going to turn it around and make it into a, oh, well, yeah, we'll throw a black girl in there that, that grew up in the voodoo environment. But you know what? We're going to kill off. She's like, let the white girl be the hero because, you know, the black girl told her what to do. I mean, really? Yeah. It becomes clear that Cece is, again, and this has been a problem throughout the whole film thus far, she is just a plot device. Nothing more. Most characters in this film are. She is simply there to provide a solution for the character of Eden to be able to overcome the force of evil. And the solution that's in the end provided is really not very impressive at all. Like the outcome of the movie, what it takes for Eden to overcome Ray, anybody could have fucking done it. So I was going to say, you're going to tell me she's the only one that could have done that? Like, really? It would not have been her. It would have been fucking Cece. Cece deserved the finale in this film, especially after losing her lovely grandmother. My God, you're just kidding. This guy, this, this Ray just fucking kills off this family, I guess. And like, for a moment, you think it's really, like you mentioned, that you think that Cece's story arc is going to become a big focal point of what's about to happen the whole idea that he's after her he will not rest until her grandmother's family is is uh you know killed out of like i guess out of punishment for what she did you know with all those snakes all that evil like they're now after her bloodline is kind of what i i I took it as well that ends really quick here and it's no longer that the the focus Okay, so we cut to Eric stopping at this gas station, um, Ray's gas station, where he finds Sean is there. And, you know, Sean has his little, like, freak out where he's like, I guess this is all mine now. And he's screaming, you think I got what it takes? Are people going to come through and ring my bell? Are they going to ring my bell? Bless his heart because he's a nice looking guy. But this is some of the cringiest acting, Roger, I think I've seen in quite some time. And we just watched Phantom of the Mall. 
this performance right here is terrible. I cannot believe that it was left in the film. It's so bad. I don't know if I'm totally out of the park with this, but they should have cut this from the film. He then starts like destroying the gas station. He's like throwing shit around and like, oh, having a big fit because, you know, it's his dad's gas station. He feels like he inherited it now. Why he would think that when he just five minutes earlier in the film says that he doesn't even consider this guy his father and he's never spoken to him, but now he's assuming he's inheriting this gas station. Okay, I'll take it. Film. Um, But he does stop when he finds like his father who he's never talked to and doesn't have a relationship with has a picture of him as a kid that he keeps at the counter. So it, it mellows him out and he goes outside and then Eric immediately hears him throwing up. So he runs out there and Sean's like motioning towards like the garage and Eric runs in and sees like the blood and guts and shit from what we're assuming Tammy and Patty all over the floor in this like circle. It's like a blood. What do you want to say? A blood Hylogryphic on the floor. Yeah. So that's that's that. So back at Cece's house, um, you know, Cece's asking how long Ray's body has been missing. And they're like, well, I think it's been since this morning. So she takes them to this room that is supposedly this voodoo temple where for generations people would come to this specific room and worship. And she tells you know, the group that her grandmother was well-respected and helped lots of people like cleanse their souls and just, you know, pass over six, you know, peacefully into the other life. And she finds this charm, this Baca charm that she will tell specifically Eden protects against evil. You know, Eden asks, what was your grandmother doing out that late anyways? And... CC reveals that they were building like this new mill in town and the grandma was afraid because of the location that they were building it, that the construction workers were actually going to dig up the suitcase and then they would not know how to properly dispose of it or what to do. So she went to get this suitcase and Eden's like, well, what was so important in the suitcase? And she says it was the souls of the you know, the people that she saved, quote unquote, that these snakes were in the suitcase are the ones that sucked out the souls. And every soul in that suitcase is of a violent, evil person. And if they got to Ray, he is going to basically become the epitome of evil. I mean, the the core story of this it's kind of it's kind of intriguing. Yeah, I mean when you when you give this explanation of like okay there's going to be a new mill going into town, she buried it there cuz she never wanted anyone to discover it. Now, you know, she's doing this out of an act of good, wanting to make sure it gets into the right hands, it's properly disposed of. There's something there. It just was certainly not like properly handled by the writing staff, the writing team that executed this excellent script. But there is something there. There is a moment here where I'm like, you know, there is a cool backstory for a killer here. It's disappointing that this was so shoddily handled because if it would have fallen into the right hands, and I, I mentioned this before, but like only a year later, the first hatchet came out. And while it was a significantly like smaller production, it developed way more of a fan base because I feel like it truly knew what it wanted to be. It wanted to be a fully practical homage to Bayou horror films and films of the 80s. This is trying to be the same thing, but it's trying to do it with a 
layer of gloss and Hollywoodification that, you know, any Victor Crawley movie simply really just doesn't have. Um, and it does the Hatchet series a lot of favor. Whereas here, the story's there, but they're too worried about making this a, a big, glossy, big budget production most of the time that it loses so much of its soul to it. It loses a lot of the heart and the things you want to see from these slashers and the characters within them. You lose it there too. Instead, they go for this to be a CGI fest, and they really try to they they try to make it something way bigger than it really is or needs to be. And um, it's kind of disappointing. I think if they would have chilled the fuck out at this point and just focused on what could have been a cool story, this again, this could have turned out to be something a lot more memorable. Yeah, I do like the story, but the execution is just extremely poor. And, you know, Victor Crowley was an intimidating killer. And yeah, that film was full of practical effects. And when you compare Victor Crowley to this, there is just such a huge, huge difference in style, you know, execution. You know, Victor Crowley, the Hatchet films are entertainment from start to finish. This film, you know, it tries to give us that sort of popcorn element, but it really never hits that stride. Just because of the the characters, the the situations we're put in, I'm never really sort of entertained by this film. I feel like the film is a little too; it takes itself a little too seriously most of the time to be like truly entertaining. Like if you watch Hatchet, you are going to be thoroughly entertained by that film. This film, I just don't think is entertaining, and I think that's another huge, huge part of what made this film or what makes this film such a dud for me. So Eden, you know, after Cece reveals that, you know, if these snakes got to Ray, he's going to be evil. She tells Rachel and Ricky to go to town and get the sheriff and get her mom. And Cece is very adamant to Eden that if Ray Sawyer is possessed by these souls, he is going to come and kill her. He's going to come after her specifically Cece and he'll kill anyone that gets in the way. So we think, so that right there, Cece saying this, I thought was setting it up for like a battle between her and Ray, right? And these other characters there to like protect Cece and help battle it out with her. And, you know, once, you know, is able to accomplish what he wants or doesn't accomplish what he wants, the story, the story is kind of going to end, but that's not what happens. Rachel and Ricky go out to her car and they find it completely overturned. So apparently... This Ray character also has like superpowers. I kind of like this moment though, Troy. <laughs> it's sh- it's shocking, but the, my my mind went to like, hey, okay, so how did he do this? Because we've not seen him have any really like superhuman strength. I mean, he has a pickup truck. I mean, he could have flipped it over with the pickup truck, but I don't think that's what they were intending on. Uh, I think they were. I think the insinuation was we're supposed to think that he did this himself, which makes zero fucking sense because not one moment in this movie does he display any superhuman strength right no right i mean he does rip an arm off coming up here in a little bit but it's not like flip a car over level strength or at least it doesn't seem to be one character who we've mentioned the name but we really haven't given a ton of focus but she's becoming a little more prominent here is rachel um i will say that out of all the characters i think that she is one of the ones that has the most personality. She's a bit of like the sarcastic friend. If anyone's got little quips or one-liners, it's often her. I like her character, especially when compared to some of the talking wallpaper that we're having to experience with one Agnes Bruckner. Uh, But again, this is a character who is given very little to do other than to push along Eden's storyline. 
Um, but I do like her character, and I do like what's coming up involving her character here in the next few scenes. Well, they notice the car is overturned, and of course they're like freaked out. What the hell could happen? What is what's going on? And all of a sudden, they do hear, you know, some jangling, and they they look into the forest, and sure enough, we see Ray. And so they take off back towards the house as they're running back to the house. So this Ray character literally launches this crowbar and it hits Rachel in the back and causes her to fall to the ground. And of course they have to get her and help her get up. They run to the house and Ricky falls onto the steps going in and Ray comes up behind him and impales him through the leg with this crowbar, which looks freaking painful. The others make it in. And yeah, there's this moment then when they're watching and, you know, poor Ricky's screaming his fucking head off trying to get out. He's pinned by this uh, crowbar when Ray just like, yeah, rips his fucking arm off. (laughs) But again, Troy, again, it is another kill where there's this great moment of buildup where he's screaming. I mean, he's selling it. This actor is selling it. He's, He's flipping his shit. The crowbar is all the way through his leg. You get some really gnarly shots of that. And then Ray walks up to him, and I think he rips his arm off because he uses the arm as part of the ritual. But the way they film it, it's like it cuts to like a faraway angle where it's such an abrupt shot that you can barely tell what the fuck happens. And it's just like you feel like the people making this just have not ever seen an actual horror movie before, which I know is not the case, but it just seems like yet another bad choice when it comes to one of the executions of the death scenes. It's quick. Yeah. It took me a couple, actually, to be honest with you, it took me a couple times to actually figure out what he did in terms of ripping the arm off. It's, it's so quick and it, yeah, the, the camera work is real choppy so you don't really get a good perspective of what's happening but yeah you do see him take the arm and then like draw the the snake figure on the front door cc is trying to ensure everyone that they're going to be okay rachel's freaking out she's like how do you know rachel's like well this house is you know blessed it's protected and rachel makes some comment about well i'm glad your mother your i'm glad your grandmother was busy doing that instead of getting a phone and of course eden is freaking out demanding that they get a gun you know, where's your grandmother's gun? So she goes for a gun. You can tell that they're desperate at this point, like for Eden being what they clearly want to be the final girl. They want her to be all of the things that viewers would anticipate from the character, including being a badass. So for a brief moment, Eden's getting a gun because of course she is. Um, and so she's just firing the shotgun a few times here over and over. They're They're really desperate to make Eden someone who stands out, uh, someone you want to root for, someone you want to care about, but she just doesn't have like the charisma. She doesn't have that likability factor that you look for from a final girl. So I don't care if you put a gun in her hand. I don't care if you put a snake charm in her hand. I don't care what she's doing here. I, I constantly find her to be very beige. She's very boring. Um, and I, I wish I liked her more, but something I can't put my finger on it. I don't know. What do you think it is about her character that makes her just so like lackluster? I just feel like we don't spend enough time with the character to, to get to, to really know her that well. You know, they, they try to shoehorn in this, this love story between her and Eric, but it's, there's no significant amount of time spent on it. We don't really get any moments with, with her, a teenage girl, 
You know, we get some moments of her at work interacting with Cece, but it's it's kind of all business. There's never really any room for this character to kind of develop into one that we care about. Um, it's like, okay, she has a few scenes and then she's thrown into this, you know, position to be the final girl uh, for some reason. Like she is literally the the least dynamic of the female characters in this entire film. Even the character of Patty, who was in the film like literally two minutes, had way more personality than this character. Um, I don't know what the what they were trying to go for with this character, but yeah, I just I don't find her engaging. I don't care about her. Um, I don't really know anything about her personality. She's very one note throughout the entire film, even like when she's confronted in these moments of like heightened suspense and terror, she's her reactions are still very like one note. She's never like animated. She's never excited. She's never like over the top scared about what's going on. Just an odd, odd choice uh, of characterization, particularly for the character that we are supposed to ultimately end up caring about. Eric and Sean show up and they do notice the overturned car and they, they run back to the house. Uh, and as they are approaching the house, they turn around and see that Ray is pulling up behind them in his trusty tow truck. So they all get in the house and Eric is freaking out. He's like, what the fuck was that Ray? How could that be Ray? Ray is dead. And right as he says, Ray is dead. This chain comes back bursting through the window and wraps itself around Sean's neck and fucking Ray yanks Sean violently out the window. This would kill a man. Like, let's yes. be clear. Like the chain around the neck alone, remove the window, just yanking someone with a chain with that kind of force by their neck is going to absolutely kill the person. Then you throw in the, the fact that he goes straight through a goddamn window. I mean, my God, this man is absolutely going to be dead. It's not even like he goes through the window and he's horribly injured. He's like, oh, my God, I'm bleeding. He is absolutely unscathed. Like, there isn't a single wound or cut or scar or visible injury on Sean. He's dazed having gone through this window, but he is not injured. And that does not make any sense to me at all. Did you, did you- did you see how violently he's pulled out the window? Yes! Violently he lands on that ground. He like would they, be he, dead. He, yes. But he's getting pulled. And of course, Eric runs out to help him and is trying to get a hold of him. And here, here comes Eden now. All of a sudden, she's a gun-toting, you know, badass bitch, even though she doesn't sell that aspect of the character either because she like shoots Ray a couple times and he flies back. And then she's like, eh, no. And um, Sean gets up. Yeah, Sean's perfectly fine. He's perfectly fine. He's able to get up and he's like, oh, it's okay. We got him. We got him. And as he's saying that, we see Ray stand back up and Sean turns around and legitimately watches this man approach him with this crowbar and just stands there. And here, here, Roger, we have come to learn from this brilliant plot that Sean is Ray's son, right? So this moment where Sean was just would not was not moving and was just staring at Ray, I thought was going to lead to some sort of, I don't know, confrontation where, you know, between father and son, something that was going to be a little bit more interesting because it's obvious that that Sean is recognizing that this is his father, quote unquote, but that doesn't happen. 
Like all this buildup about Ray being Sean's father leads to this moment and nothing happens. Ray literally walks up to him, smashes him in the face with the crowbar. So we get another horribly CGI open cheek and then shoves the crowbar through his fucking body. And we get another CGI splash of blood. That's it. That is the big confrontation between father and son. It's disappointing is the thing. It's disappointing because they've given this character a multitude of platforms to dramatically speak his issues with his father. I mean, like you talked about before, he had that big monologue, throwing shit around, ringing the bell, ringing the bell, talking about it, bitching about it. And and for it to all end on this note, like, again... I I fall back on what I said earlier. Every character here is simply added to the story to be a plot device and nothing more. So as soon as that purpose is no longer necessary, they kill him off. And so Sean, the whole reason for introducing this aspect of of their the relationship with the character of ray who even ray for being the killer in this movie is really not that prominent like i mean you see him but you don't see him that often he's always shadowed it's not until the final showdown that you actually get a clear look at what the fuck's going on with the guy up to this point you don't see a ton of him so you finally get this moment where Sean like makes eye contact. He realizes that the eyes are completely black. He's like, what the fuck is up with my dad? The father kills him. The reason they killed him right now is because they need to have this character involved in a ritual that Cece will be performing here shortly. And this is why they killed him. Do they necessarily need to kill him for this, though? I definitely do not think this man needed to die for this. Uh, but Roger, this the ritual scene goes nowhere. I know! I am aware! That's my <laughs> point. It all, it's just a bunch of concepts loosely kind of tied together, but there's not really like a driving purpose for any of them. So when you kill this character off, you just feel like you spent all this time I guess kind of caring about his relationship with his father, only for it to mean nothing. It's such a waste of character development. Well, and let's be honest here. Of all the characters that we have in this film, this Sean character, as bad of a performance as I think the actor gives at some points in the film, not all well, not all through the film, but there are a few points where he's bad, still is like the most developed character of the entire film. And that's not saying much, but at least we get a backstory. He has some dimension to him. We see how he copes with being like the outcast of the town, people knowing that his, he's kind of a bastard child and the racist father. You know, he, 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 he drinks, he gets drunk to, to deal with that and all. He has the most backstory. And then to just kill him off like this is, again, unnecessary and just like not a good decision. <laughs> It's sloppy writing. It's writing without having an end goal in mind. This movie, when it hits its conclusion, it's not like there's been some like great revelation or it's, I don't know, set itself up in a way where you feel satisfied upon this movie ending. This movie literally just ends. That is it. And it's because none of these characters are well utilized. You don't care about a single aspect of this film. And when they do give you a few things that you feel like you should kind of grab onto and start caring about, they waste your time with it. Yeah, they giveth and then they taketh away just as quick. 
Um, but they drag Sean inside and they're trying to save his life. You know, Rachel's freaking out, wanting to stop the blood. But ultimately, it's too late because Sean dies right there on the floor of this house. You know, outside, Ray is just like standing there, staring inside. And Eric's like, he's just standing out there. What's he doing? So Eden goes to ask Cece how they need to stop Ray. Cece says they can stop him with this Baca, but she doesn't know if she's able to like use its full power without her grandmother. But Cece does have an idea. She's like, I can make a doll, meaning a voodoo doll. And she's like, uh, you know, I, I, I know enough about it that we may be able to stop his body long enough just to get to safety, to get away. Cece says that, you know, I need something from Ray's though. And Eric makes the comment, oh, well, who's going to run out there and get a locket of his hair? And now all of a sudden, Eden becomes like this intellectual know-it-all because she's like, oh, maybe we can use Sean because Sean is Ray's son and his blood is running through him, right? Will that work? And Cece's, yes, blood is the strongest. Uh, so they're going to use Sean as a as like a human voodoo doll. And Rachel and Eric are just like whining and objecting. And it's to the point where you're like, oh, my God. Like, you know, this guy is like a murderer. You would think you'd want to do anything to stop him. And if this is going to work, at least give it a try. But but Eric and Rachel are like, I don't want anything to do with that. But they agree, ultimately, because they drag Sean's body into the altar room. Cece instructs them what they need to do. Sprinkle some blessing powder around. Right, light some candles. She brings in like this rolled up, you know, piece of cloth and Rachel's like, you're not going to stick him with pins, are you? And she unrolls the cloth to realize, no, she's not going to stick him with pins, Roger. She's going to stick him with fucking butcher knives. (laughs) Big fucking knives. And she's ready. Like Cece's like, at this point, she's like, you know what? I'm going to dig these right into this man's thigh. She knows what she's getting ready to do. Well... Rachel won't have any part of it, so she goes into the living room with Eric, and Eden and Cece stay into the room and perform this voodoo chant. This next scene is ridiculous. What ends up happening is while Rachel and, you know, Eric are out in the living room because they don't want to be part of this, you know, voodoo ritual, this voodoo doll thing, outside, apparently Ray has chained, tied a chain around one of the base of the house, the cement bases of the house. And he literally like floors his tow truck and rips off the fucking living room of the house (laughs) with Eric and Rachel still in it. It's probably one of the best set pieces in the film. Like it's fucking absurd, but you do see a literally a portion of the house just go like flying after the truck, dragging after it. And, like, it's probably the biggest budget-looking moment in the film. It's cool. It's hectic. People are screaming. Houses are getting torn apart. Pieces of the ceiling are collapsing on Eden and Sweet Cece, who are, you know, trying to do this ritual. And now Cece's trapped under a rafter or something. You know, she's trapped under, like, a big piece of wood. Um, So she's injured, but she's still trying to make shit happen. Yeah. uh, Well, she's trying to make shit happen, but it's not happen in the way it needs to be because Ray's coming into the house after her and you know, she does start stabbing Sean's leg and it is stopping uh, Ray as he's approaching, but like not like permanently, like he gets right back up and she stabs this, this leg about four times and then she's like twisting the knife, but it doesn't really stop him. Like he falls down a couple times, but then he gets back up and he gets to her, grabs the knife out of her hand and literally Roger slashes her throat and kills her. And that is the end of Cece. 
it's so incredibly unsatisfying. Like, f on so many levels. I mean, uh, not just her death, but also the fact, like, they've been talking about this ritual. You really think it's going to be a big to-do. Like, you think it's building up to something important in the story. And it, not only, like, is it not something that's really going to be, like, the key to defeating him. It's just really just to distract him. But, like, it barely does that. Like, it knocks him down a few times, but she's trapped under this piece of a fucking house, so it's not like she can get up and run. So she's just, like, trapped there, and he walks up to her and fucking cuts her throat. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, why would you introduce all of this, like, seemingly important backstory tying her to the initial events of what happened to unleash all of this, you know? Why would you just... Throw it away like that. Like, it just seems like such a sloppy idea. And now you got her fucking white girl and white boy. <laughs> you got three blondes. You got three blondes left. Like, th this point moving forward, it's literally white children against zombified entity. And that's it. Yeah, and then it was mentioned earlier that, like, by Cece, that if Ray gets to her, that's his, that's his sole intent was to kill her, right? Well, he kills her right now. She doesn't even get to put up a fight. He kills her, but he's still a killing machine. Like apparently that was wrong, that his intention wasn't just to kill off CC and her family because now he's still going after these remaining kids. Like, like I feel like the writers forgot what they even said 10 pages previously in the script. Eric and Rachel pull up to the Jeep and they get Eden and they drive away. Of course, they're driving down the road, but they are immediately then pursued by Ray in his tow truck uh, where he comes out from the side road and pulls up and like gets next to him and is like keeping up with them. And all of a sudden him in this fucking chain, he takes this chain again, throws it into the Jeep, wraps it around Rachel's neck and pulls her towards him. So you get this scene of, of Rachel basically straddle between the tow truck and the jeep you know eden and eric are trying to hold her feet in and ray has had her pulled you know towards the driver's side so she's literally like hanging between the cars and they're going full speed and you know she's screaming her head off they don't know what to do um there's this moment when they see i think they all see it right they see this tree that's in the middle of the road like that causes a fork in the road and they're still going full speed like Roger. Okay. I get it. This is kind of a cool concept for a death scene. We've seen it before though. I think this one of the, something similar happened in like one of the, um, Oh, Joyride films, maybe Joyride two, I think, but it was between two semis, but like, I'm sorry. Eden kills Rachel with that tree. She clearly sees this tree approaching all you had to do was let go of her and she would have flung to the side of the tow truck and been at least parallel with the tow truck. So she wasn't going to be in fucking impaled on a tree. Yeah. I mean, I think if she would have let her go, she would have also let her go into the hands of the killer. So, I mean, I, I agree with you. Well, I, I mean, you know what? They could still, they could ram the Jeep back into that and try to get her back. At least she'd have a chance to live. Yeah. I mean, I, I do have to say that, while you're absolutely right, I think that this kill is really fun. Like, I really enjoy her body getting smashed into that, hanging off those branches. Yeah. It I looks do. cool. I don't think it looks cool. Okay. They were going at least 60 miles an hour. At least 60 miles an hour. 
realistically, if she would have hit that tree, her body would have been demolished. Going that fast of a speed and hitting a tree branch, your body would have been ripped in half. She's literally in, just impaled on this branch. I'm sorry. No. you. Her body would have been totally torn in half. It, it would have. I mean, like, it, it looks cool with it hanging off the tree, but you're right. Like, is it... Is, I mean, listen. It's goddamn 2005's Venom. I mean, are we asking for too much here for them to be able to come up with the exact trajectory in which a body would, you know, explode on a branch? Like, I agree with you, but I mean... I'm taking what I can get. But I feel like any, I think, I feel like a fourth grader would recognize that running into a tree branch at that rate of speed would demolish a body. And it goes, again, I could forgive it, Roger, if I could forgive it if the rest of the film wasn't so fucking lazy. This is just another pile of the lazy section here. They didn't want to go through the effort of having to create a, an effect that would have been a hell of a lot more effective and a hell of a lot more realistic. Instead, they're just going to stick her on a tree branch and impale her. Come on. Lazy. That's just what this film has given me. Lazy, lazy, lazy. And at this point in the film, I'm just over it, to be honest with you. So it just it's bugging me even more when we get this lazy shit because it's been the whole movie. It's lazy. It's lazy. You're it's lazy. It's a cool looking effect with her body hanging off that tree, but it is lazy. I will agree. You know, now Rachel's dead. So they continue um, to drive away, but they get stopped because there happens to be a down tree in the middle of the road. You know, they're, they have to get out of the Jeep. And before they get out of the Jeep, Eric says something about, let's just go. I'm going to, we're, I'm going to go with you. And we're, I'm going to move to New York city with you. So now apparently they're perfectly fine. I don't know. So they run through the swamp. I do. I will say Roger. Okay. I've been pretty harsh. The scene in the swamp in theory is interesting. I, I do like the fact that like, the way that Ray looks like stomping through the swamp now, because now he's basically his whole body has become, you know, this black uh, reptilian scaly look to it. And it looks really cool seeing him stomp, uh, stomp through the swamp. I also like the fact, even though it's ridiculous that he's able to like jump into the water and like swim like a snake because they're in the swamp. And yeah, Ray literally sees them and he gets underwater and it's like swimming towards them. And they don't know where he got, where he went. And as they're kind of looking around, he jumps out of the water and, you know, swings the crowbar at him. Eden is able to get out of the water and, you know, Eric is left behind and he just tells her to keep going, to keep going up on shore. There's this moment with Eric where he, you know, is in the water by himself. And all of a sudden Ray emerges and he has to wrestle with Ray. And then we cut to, Eden in the cemetery now by herself. She's calling for uh, Eric. We hear some like moaning and, 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 and whatnot, but we don't really know what happened to Eric at this point. And in the cemetery, she runs into this mausoleum that happens to be open and goes down the stairs and it leads to like this large tunnel uh, where at the end of it, there's like this crypt where Ray has apparently been performing this blood ritual and he's been disposing of all the bodies in this open crypt because she looks over and sees all these dead bodies. And her reaction here has to be like the least, <laughs> the least reaction I've ever seen of anybody finding a slew of dead bodies. She like looks over and she's like, Oh, and then she like literally hears him coming down the stairs and she has nowhere to go. So she jumps into this crypt and plays dead among these bloodied, disgusting bodies. Ray approaches and tosses another body into the crypt. 
she looks over and it's Eric. And there's this moment where we all as the audience think Eric's dead, including her. But Eric is not dead because he opens his eyes, causing her to gasp in surprise, which alerts Ray that someone is still alive in this crypt. So he grabs his screwdriver. He goes into this crypt and starts like fiddling through the bodies until he realizes, hey, this one wasn't one I put in here. So he grabs Eden's leg to get ready to pull her out. And this is when Eric decides that he's going to save Eden's life because he begins groaning loudly so that Ray shifts his attention from Eden and puts it onto him to the point where he grabs Eric by the head, lifts him up. You know, Eric is making contact with Eden and Ray proceeds to slam the screwdriver straight into Eric's skull, killing him. For as... I've used the word lackluster a lot, but it just, I feel like it fits this film. For as lackluster as so many of these moments have been up to this point, both in the scare factor and just the overall character development angle as well. Um, for us to get this moment, which I mean, imagine if this would, if this would have been a character that we actually cared about. <laughs> uh, because this is a pretty strong sequence. And his decision here is bold and it's surprising and i like that if he's going to go out like this i like that he goes out on kind of a hero note it's a shame that up until this point this character was so um so basic you know like if there would if he would have been more dynamic if there would have been more to all of the characters in general but at least you know for this guy you know some moments he's likable you said earlier some moments he's likable some moments you're like what the fuck are you doing if if this what character would have been written well this would have been a really impactful moment. It's so good as it stands. I enjoy this scene, but like, imagine we actually cared. Yeah. This is the scene I mentioned at the beginning that, that um, I felt was ballsy and that stuck with me. Uh, this is the only scene that I, I only remember Eric dying from my initial viewing of this all those years ago. I didn't remember specifically how it happened. I just remember it happened. I do think it's ballsy and I do think like you're right. It could have imagine the impact that it would have had if both of the characters, not just Eric, but if both Eden and Eric were written better and their relationship was written better. And we were given a little bit more moments with them to see their dynamic and to see their relationship. Because to be honest with you, Roger, yes, he sacrificed himself for her. He knew what was going to happen. I don't buy it. I, I don't, but we'll go with it. But her reaction is not very like strong either. Like she just sees this guy that's sacrificing his life for her, be stabbed through the head with a screwdriver. And yeah, she like winces for a minute and a, a tear drops down, falls from her eye, but that's about it. Three seconds later, she's pulling that fucking screwdriver out of his head and getting up and acting like she's going to do something while Ray is, you know, performing his latest blood ritual. At this point in the film, Ray definitely looks his most effective. I do want to say, um, like, you know, we mentioned he's gone full reptilian at this point. His skin is very textured and withered. And, and, you know, as she starts to creep up behind him with the weapon and she's like, we're going to take it into her own hand. She's going to take care of him. She's going to take care of business. And she's creeping up behind Ray, and there's this this whole bit here that happens where you see like the texture of his skin moving. It's actually kind of cool, and something like an eye, an eyeball appears under the surface surface of his skin. And 
I don't know like where this fucking came from. I didn't know he had these powers. I really didn't. I didn't know he had multiple eyeballs under his skin, but apparently that is the case. Uh, strange to introduce it within the last five to ten minutes of the movie, but okay. Um, it's kind of a cool moment, and it does lead into like this final showdown here between the two of them. Um, and he really like does look rather effective with the snake fangs, the burn charred skin, because they do have a big fight with candelabras here coming up. Um, his skin gets all singed, and he does really actually look rather intimidating for this finale. So I will say they at least step up their game with his overall like aesthetic for this final chunk of the film. Yeah, no, he looks great. I, I mean, I think that's the at this point in the film, it's the best thing that about the entire film is the the look of this killer. He he actually looks creepy. He looks scary he's intimidating at this point he hasn't been really throughout the whole film but now he's he's getting to that point and yeah this but this leads to a pretty brief i guess exciting fight not really but you know because she attacks him and yeah he he's able to grab her and you know he gets his arm caught on fire with the candelabra and she starts pushing him towards the the opening of this vault thing and as he falls, he grabs her and they both fall down into this vault together. And, you know, he's knocked out for a bit. He has the wind knocked out of him. So she's able to get into this other room of this vault and shut the gate. And, you know, he's coming after her, trying to reach through. And she takes out that Baca, that charm, and, you know, is, is using it against him. And it causes him to really just lose a lot of his fight and energy. He kind of slumps down to the ground. And as she's, as she's watching him, all of a sudden these fucking snakes start coming out of his body, these CGI snakes. And we're like, what the fuck? And she, you know, is able to try to ward him off as best as she can with these, with that charm. And she's, she's crawling up, trying to get out of this thing. You know, the snakes are coming after her just as she gets to the top and tries to shut the, the lid on it. One lurches at her and she throws that charm down at the bottom and the Ray's down there and he wakes up and we do get like a really cool close-up shot of his face and his reptilian dark eyes as he looks up at her and just like screams as she slams the lid to this vault down. It's, I mean, it's a pretty cool scene again, short, just like every other kind of scene of action in this film, but it's, it, it culminates nicely with that scene of him, of us really getting a good glimpse of him. I was going to say the same thing. Like, for a moment here, the movie hits a stride. Like, she is being resourceful. She's climbing out of this fucking thing. I was shocked to see that the Baca really was as effective as it was. Like, could they have incorporated this earlier? Like, it seems to have quite an effect on him. Um, it really seems to be kind of the solution for defeating him, it seems. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's not the final straw, but it's quite powerful it gets the snakes to fucking come out of his body and start attacking her so clearly it has some kind of impact on him i wish they would have thought to use it earlier seems like it would have solved a lot of problems um but you know good for her she's able to get out right before one of the snakes lunges at her at this point my big issue with with eden is like considering the scenario she just gets up and she runs off and for me i don't know I know it's a sacred ground. This is a cemetery, but I, at this point, you like what must be done must be done. Burn it to the ground, like burn it. I don't know. Take that pickup truck and just plow it through the building and light it all on fire 
douse it in gasoline and burn it to the ground. I don't understand how you would feel like running off without somehow finding a way to solidify this guy's death would be the right call because he seems very powerful and you got to get it taken care of. He's still growling down there. I mean, he ain't dead. Why wouldn't you take the power into your own hands? Well, I mean, that's the problem with this film. Well, that's one of the multiple problems with this film, right? Is this, this conclusion that we get is not satisfactory. Yeah. She locks him in this vault, runs out of the cemetery, goes to his tow truck to get into it, starts it. And it's, you know, cause she still, cause she can hear him like screaming when she's, you know, at this tow truck. So she gets in to try to get away. He literally comes, he's there. He's pulling her out of the tow truck. There's this moment where she runs into the woods. Um, he's chasing her. He has this trusty crowbar. She's hiding in some brush. You know, he sees her or hears her into in this brush and he goes over and he just starts beating the shit out of where she was at. And of course she's gone and he's standing there like, uh, what the fuck? And all of a sudden here she comes floor in the fucking tow truck runs right into him and pushes him into a fucking tree trunk. And his body literally explodes into like five pieces, like the arms go flying, the torso flies on the hood. Okay. So they could do that for his death scene when, when she wasn't even going nearly as fast in this tow truck as they were both were driving with poor fucking Rachel strung between the two of them. They can, they can rip his body apart, but Rachel just gets impaled. Come on. And this is the worst CGI Roger. When this, when these body parts fly everywhere, it is so bad. And it just makes it worse because it's the last shot of the film is her walking over to the hood of the car, looking at the torso on the hood, walking away but the camera lingers and all of a sudden in good 2005 fashion we get the cgi snakes lurch out of the torso towards the camera i love that this movie ends on the worst cgi in the whole film like i mean the the cgi is bad at certain points but these snakes for the final shot are atrocious i mean they look like some i mean uh, they look like just like brown noodles like you can't even really tell what the fuck is going on so one of them lunges at the camera it looks sloppy and another thing i mean this truck this is an old pickup truck it's been making sounds it's not starting it's like like whatever she's trying to you know get it in gear just a second ago when she's trying to turn it around it took her about 45 minutes just to get the truck to to rotate let alone turning it on discreetly and using it to sneak up on someone to plow them in half. I mean, how would this man not hear this truck coming? One of my biggest issues with the film is it runs at a really tight pace. I mean, overall, it's not even hour 30. But this final showdown between them is brief, especially when she gets out of the mausoleum. You know, he chases after her. You got this great scare where he pops up in the window. I really like that, where she's like looking. She keeps looking back. You know what's going to happen, but it still gets you every time because he looks so effective. And, of course, they take to running into the woods right after that. And then it's just like a matter of seconds. She hides in the the brush. He shows up. You know that she's not going to be there. You've seen this trope so many times. And then he turns around, and the truck is coming right for him. For them to end it on, like, that lame of a, like, oh, she's not in the bushes, she's in the truck, she's going to kill him, end of story. 
I guess I just would have expected there to be something bigger, especially after the whole thing that went on in the mausoleum. Like, to defeat this guy, you're going to tell me that there's not going to be, like, some, like, something more, something more to the ritual or whatever the fuck you've got to do. All you got to do is hit this guy with a fucking truck and he's dead. Like, that's all it took. You could have done this hours ago. That's all it took. Yeah, they could have defeated him hours ago. And, you you know, why did it take her, Eden, to be able to do this? She's not that strong and capable. I mean, she's just like, just one of the kids. She's just like anyone else, but like not in an endearing way. It's just like, she's just like unremarkable. You know, she's not like a stand-up final girl. Like you've got so many of these other girls who, who have proven themselves to be so fucking capable. She's just kind of lucky to be alive, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. It's just kind of circumstance that she's the one that survives, right? I mean, she would have been dead if fucking Eric would have kept his mouth shut while they were in that vault. She would have been dead. So it's just kind of circumstance that she is the one that survives despite the film being about voodoo and we actually having characters who are familiar with voodoo rituals in the film. We get eaten. But yeah, the film ends with some shitty CGI snakes and Venom is over. Venom is over. Ugh. Lucky us. I mean, all I can say is like a prime example of just laziness. And I guess I, I discovered watching this film, and maybe you can tell from like my tone throughout this, laziness is just something I don't really have a tolerance for anymore. You know, knowing like what it takes to make a film and, and these th- this type of film actually made it into a theater for real. Like, you know, you have so many interesting, creative, stylistic films with their own personalities being produced in the indie horror community that oftentimes go go ignored you know the only people that find out about them are other indie horror fans or indie filmmakers or people that spread the word but yet something like this the most boring insipid film i think i've ever seen in my life um can make it into a theater if you enjoy the film i i guess <sighs> I guess I can see why, but like I said, even, and I I often say this, you know, this is a great film just to sit back and eat popcorn and enjoy. I can't even say this about this film. I just got no enjoyment watching this. I did not. I was not entertained. You know, I would watch Eric's Revenge, Phantom of the Mall, (laughs) any day over this. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I definitely would have to agree at this point in my life, you know. This film served a fun purpose for me when I was discovering the slasher genre specifically and really becoming a fan of it. Um, But there's so many movies that take this formula and do it better and have better characters as part of it. And it's not the worst film I've ever seen, but in some ways I'd rather watch a film I'd consider the worst film I'd ever seen because I'd have stronger opinions on it. I'd care more. You leave this film and like, I'm not shocked they never made a sequel. I wouldn't know what that fucking sequel would be about. Like, I couldn't even really tell you what the main driving plot of the story is. The things that I would think would be the focus of the story and would define it are tossed aside. You know, the relationship with his son being a major playing factor. The aspect of Cece being directly tied to the voodoo ritual. They're all thrown aside in order to just have this character of Eden come out as, like, a final girl. And unfortunately for Agnes Bruckner, she just doesn't manage to possess the kind of chutzpah and charm that so many of these other girls who've come before her and after her and after her have. 
Um, so she's just kind of like fallen by the wayside. This movie in general has fallen by the wayside because it follows a form a familiar formula almost too closely. And because of that, it's just boring. It becomes something we've seen so many times before and we'll see again and probably done better. Precisely. There is a reason why this film came and went and really doesn't get talked about a lot. It's because as I mentioned, this film has no identity or personality of its own. What we see here, what we see here in this film, bare bones, group of teenagers being stalked by a killer, whether they're possessed or not, we have seen done literally thousands of times before. And of those thousands of times before, vast majority of them have been better than this. You know, this film does not try to do anything uniquely its own and i'm not saying that's a bad thing because you know we look how many countless friday the 13th films we have look how many countless camp slasher films we have look how many countless you name it we the slasher genre is probably the most over saturated subgenre of the entire horror genre itself however the ones that get talked about the ones that stand out the ones that we bring up all the time the ones that we love we do so because a, they have identities. They try to do something different. They try to set themselves apart from the rest of the batch, which you need to do when you have so many of them in play. And B, I would say the characters. You know, many of these slasher films are memorable because of the characters, whether that be the killer or the secondary characters or the final girl, the final boy, whoever. We remember them. We connect to them. We feel for them. We want to see them survive. We want to see them overcome it. This film has none of that. None of that. So at the end of the day, my question is why? Why watch this when there are hundreds of films that do the exact same thing better? Why? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I really wish I was coming away from this saying that, like, this had that one scene or this has that one moment worth really, like, you know, if you put up with all the shit, there's going to be that one scene that makes it worth it. There's so many movies we've reviewed that have been boring or bad, but there's a standout moment and it makes it feel like you're getting a fulfilling experience because of it. This movie, again, it's not the worst thing I've ever seen, but it does not have anything that I would say hooks me. There's not a major draw. And that's a bummer because there's a cool premise in there. This is a movie I feel that could be remade in 10 years and done significantly better. We've seen it happen before with other similar scenarios. Uh, let someone get another crack at the story. Tell it better. And tell it in you know 2020 moving forward. Where finally they're incorporating culture. They're incorporating people of color. Tell this with the right cast. A cast that would make sense surviving through this. You know? Amen. Amen. Cool. Yeah. Threads of a great story. An interesting story horrible execution uh that's i mean that's all i could say guys if you like venom if you enjoy the film you know hey let us know why let us know what we are missing we are always you know i'm i'm always open to other opinions i'm not somebody that thinks my opinion is the only one that matters of course it's I express my opinion on this podcast because that's what we do. But like, if you have an, I, if you like this film, if you really truly do, let us, let us know what we're missing. Maybe you'll open my eyes to something I didn't realize or didn't notice watching it. The, the three times I watched it for this, for this particular review. So let us know your thoughts on venom 
And I feel like Roger, we gotta, we gotta, we got to announce the next episode because it's our huge one. Let me give you some trumpets for it. Wait one second. Hundredth episode, guys. A hundredth episode of our regular show. We have way more than a hundred episodes when you count our Patreon, but this one is special because it is our hundredth main feed episode. And to commemorate that special occasion, I felt like it was just a necessity to pay tribute to the namesake of our podcast. Um, And I remember when I first uh, contacted you, Roger, and asked you about the podcast, and I told you I already had a name picked out for it, and I told you the name, and you're like, oh, that's a cool name. But then it wasn't like until a couple of recordings that I kind of told you where I got the name from, and you're like, oh my God, I never even made that connection. I felt like for a hundred, we got, we got to do it. We got to do, we got to do the film that, like I said, was the inspiration for the name of the podcast. So for our 100th episode of dark night of the podcast, we are covering the original made for TV movie, dark night of the scarecrow, a film I've never seen by the way. And that's why you did not understand that. That's why I got the name of the podcast from, and guys, you might not have seen it because yeah, it was a made for TV film. It fell you know, it, it premiered on TV. I, re- I remember it getting a lot of attention for being like one of the more scary made for TV films ever made. And they did replay it a couple times in the like the mid 80s, like on TBS. I think that's where I caught it as a child and it scared the fuck out of me. But now it's readily available. It had a it has a beautiful, you know, I think Blu-ray release. It's on Shutter in all of its, you know, restored glory. So if you have not seen Dark Knight of the Scarecrow and you have Shutter. You better watch it before next episode because it is literally the namesake for the podcast. And I'm excited for Roger to check it out because, yeah, he has never seen it. And you all may be shocked and offended that I co-host a podcast in which I don't know the namesake of the title. But you know what? Troy came into this knowing the title he wanted. And I knew that we were building up to something exciting with this. And so, like, I have purposely avoided ever seeing this film since jumping on board with Dark Knight of the podcast, because I knew that when I finally did view it, it would be a grand day of celebration. And that day is finally come. It's here, and we are ready to bestow our gift upon you with our very next episode, number 100. Number 100. And hopefully, Roger, you will enjoy it a hundred times more than you enjoyed Venom this time around. A bummer. A bummer. A movie that I cared about so much as a teen just didn't hold up. But you know what? Some do, some don't. You win some, you lose some. Exactly. So guys, let us know Venom and be prepared. Shout from the mountaintops, shout from the rooftops, get people to listen because we are on episode 100. So with that, guys, oh, we cannot wait. Episode 100 coming at you next week. It's going to be a big one. I got to get my beauty sleep. We do. With that, good night. Good night.